0: Hello, welcome to the Green Speak podcast. My name is Chris Enroth, I'm a horticulture educator based in Macomb, Illinois, and I'm with University of Illinois Extension. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about lawns, and we are joined by our guest uh, Richard Henschel. Thank you, Richard, for being on the show. Glad to be here, Chris. All right, Richard. So uh, we're we're colleagues. You're a horticulture educator, uh, as am I. Um, I'm in Macomb, Illinois. Where are you located?
1: Uh, my office is in uh, Kane County, St. Charles, Illinois. And like you, I cover probably several counties. I cover uh, Kane, DuPage, and Kendall counties.
0: Excellent. Yeah. So you're more northern Illinois, Chicago. So, Chicago land region, as I, a lot of folks say, um, down here in central Illinois. Yes. Right. Exactly. So, before we really get into our topic about lawns today, one thing I do want to. To, I want to get to know you a little bit uh, more. Uh, maybe hear your story about uh, how you've come about in the world of horticulture. Because um, based on like conversations we've had in the past, I've I've heard that you know you weren't always working with U of I Extension. You've you've had other jobs outside in the industry. So um, you know I kind of want to get a, a glimpse of that, uh, how that's that's worked. But but first, like you know I, I want to ask you why why horticulture is there. Is there like something you can pick out? Is it a person like a teacher or maybe a place you visited as a child? You know, what is it that brought you to this field?
1: Well, for me, it was uh, grandfather had a nursery. Dad had a nursery. And several years out of for several years out of college, I followed in those footsteps. Um, I've always enjoyed uh, teaching and educating and sharing so while I was in school, I did have the opportunity to do a summer internship with the University of Illinois Extension when they were were doing those kinds of things yet. And I had a, a very good mentor, Dr. Bill Whiteside, um, and he really introduced me to how sharing that knowledge ought to be done. And uh, while I didn't uh, initially get into Extension, uh, was an easy choice when once I chose to do that.
0: Yeah, I feel like extension has been. It, it was. It wasn't like my f- first choice. You know, it, it wasn't even on the board. You know, when I was thinking about careers, or um, but it's it's something that popped up, and and I'm uh, incredibly happy it did. This is a, a wonderful job. So it, it, very rewarding. Um, so in the beginning of your career. Um, See, I, I looked at your staff bio, it looks like you went to U of I. Um, uh, tell us a little bit more about you know, what did you study at U of I and you know, is, what, what was your focus? Did you have a specific focus that you were uh, aimed toward in horticulture?
1: Well, for me, Chris, in, in my case, uh, I spent the first two years um, at a junior college, as many, many other uh, students do these days. And, and that took care of a lot of the gen ed kind of things that you need to get out of the way. And so when I got to the University of Illinois as a junior, um, I joyfully really got to just focus on horticulture. Uh, uh, so the Englishes and the math and all those other kinds of things had uh, already taken care of. So to be able to spend two years focusing on horticulture was, uh, again, a, a real pleasure. Coursework involved uh the, the typical general kind of background things that uh, exist in any horticulture curriculum um, introduction to horticulture, greenhouse management, nursery management but the whole time there uh, given my nursery background I really tried to focus on woody ornamentals so that was plant ID, plant pathology, entomology uh, all those things were are related to ornamental
0: horticulture. Mm-hmm. And upon graduation, did you find, was it like easy to land a job or did, did you have a specific um, like sector of the green industry that you were shooting for? Well,
1: for me, landing a job was easy. I just went back home to the family nursery.
0: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh,
1: and um, that worked well for uh, many years. Uh, I eventually, though, uh, kind of in the back of my mind, I don't know, uh, Anyway, extension was always there, so at some point I uh, uh, I applied and got a position within the extension system in Rock Island County.
0: Oh, excellent! That yeah, not too far away from where I'm located. Yeah, right. Um, so in Rock Island County. Um, what what year would that have been? That would have been about 1980. Okay, and and what was the. What was the green industry like? Have you seen a huge difference from like 1980 to you know a couple decades later? Have Have you seen any major shifts in um, that time that's influenced your career?
1: Sure. Um, uh, technology, pesticides. The I think marketing is uh, is been been critical. Uh, you can't survive unless you can sell your products, So uh, marketing was. Was that there were many more smaller operations, both uh, in vegetable production as well as, say, the nursery trade uh, and some have survived and gotten larger and others have disappeared.
0: Mm hmm. And I. I would imagine where you're located, Rock Island, um, and now uh, up further in northern Illinois, there's quite a few more landscape companies operating. Uh, where I'm in, we're kind of a vacuum of like nurseries, uh, at least where I'm located. Uh, so, do you find yourself working a lot with commercial landscapers, designers, uh, growers?
1: Yes, to all that. Uh, Chicago land, as we're calling it here, is. Is what half the population of the rest of the state? Uh, so the the retail outlets, the uh, garden centers, the retail nurseries, the lawn care industry, uh, arborists—they're you know they're everywhere. And and uh, uh, compared to as I say your setting, uh, I would I would probably be in shock to go out and find only one or two lawn care folks or yes. one or two good nurseries when there are multiple nurseries uh, all throughout Chicagoland. It's a, like any any other industry, it's a supply and demand kind of a thing. Uh, when the recession came through and home building virtually ceased everywhere, um, nurseries, uh, sod farms, uh, garden centers, they were all scrambling. They had to figure out how to keep their clientele and and keep the doors open
0: yeah because you grow like trees mostly trees but also shrubs that's a long-term investment for a business to from r&d you know on on the breeder's end all the way to growing them up in the nurseries propagating them i mean that's a decade at least right of uh...
1: several several years um you can grow a new crop of sod, if you want to look at it that way, uh, yeah. in, in about 18 months. Mm-hmm. But the problem when we hit the wall was they had been producing sod based on the sales in place. So there was acres and acres of sod that just got too old. Mm-hmm. And so sod farms, if they were going to say stay alive, reverted back to uh, cash rent, corn and beans... Uh, only growing a little bit of sod for those uh, in, uh, municipal repairs or athletic field installs and things of that sort. Um, and for the nursery industry, um, it would take two to three years to say for the typical shrub, uh, but uh, five, six, or more years to get a shade tree. Mm-hmm. And there again, they sat with all these trees with the expectation they were going to sell. And and they didn't. So they also had to figure out what they were going to do. So there was a lot of, again, uh, uh, going back to agriculture, letting ground grow. You can't keep maintaining four acres of trees if they're not selling. They were just, I, I don't want to use the word, abandoned. But they were just no longer managed or maintained for sales because, and they keep right on growing, you know, you don't have a sale, the tree doesn't stay the same size, it grows every year. So sales were, sales were down, again, there's always the replacement from storm damage or construction, lightning strikes, things like that, but... For the most part the the sod industry and the commercial nursery industry uh was hit pretty hard from the retail end all the way through wholesale and when we can't grow trees here in the midwest the wholesale nurseries in other states away had the same problem there was nobody to sell their liners to because mm-hmm. we weren't buying them to grow them on so it was uh, overall in the industry it was quite quite the struggle from many many nurseries, and we and we lost a lot of nurseries during that that period.
0: Yeah, I I remember reading several articles about that. You know, nurseries just having to close down, pull out a lot of stock, uh, and that was that was a really tough time. That that yeah. was when you know my question about were you able to land a job outside of college? I graduated uh, a year after the recession hit, and so obviously there's no. There's no green industry work going on at that point in time. People are just trying, if they still do have a budget to get the the buildings, the architecture side of things finished, the landscape will have to wait till later. I was lucky enough though that I did find uh, work with a a local landscaper out in in Kansas and then um, worked my way to a a county parks department. But yeah, that was a a really tough time uh, for the green industry especially uh, during that recession.
1: Yeah. And and really, we still haven't recovered right now today. There's an absolute shortage of certain kinds of trees in certain sizes. When it takes, you just, you know, when you, when you shut your nursery down and don't continue to plant, once we kind of recover a little bit here, there are no trees in the sizes folks need or landscape contractors need because they haven't been grown. So we're still in the catch-up mode. Um, so it'll be... It'll be, again, a little bit longer, I think, a few more growing seasons before we have adjusted to the new
0: economy. Right. Yes, very much. And I I had another question, though, before we we moved on to kind of our main topic of the day. In, In a conversation we had before, you had talked about another career and you you said it was the pickle industry. Can yes. you elaborate on that a little bit more because all you said was uh, your career in the pickle industry and so I it really it made me curious so I, I want to know sure. more about what, what that sure. career was.
1: No problem. Uh, one of the one of the positions I held um, in, in between extension roles uh, was I was the executive vice president for a trade association called Pickle Packers International. And their whole focus uh, was so similar to what I had been doing in Extension that I couldn't resist the opportunity. Uh, Their focus was on, um, if you build a better cucumber, you end up with a better pickle. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was pickles, cucumbers, and cabbage. And all those were fermented products in the pickle industry. So, you now think about pickles, you can imagine the membership of the trade association was every name you ever see on the grocery store shelf. So, we did lots of research. I got to work with uh, USDA uh, in Washington, D.C., Beltsville area, been to and have worked with the, uh, the USDA, re- uh, USDA researchers. I got to work with many Midwest. Uh, state land grant universities. I worked with uh, extension folks. I worked with the pure researchers and it was all about, you know, building that, building that better cucumber disease resistance while yield is, you know, always the number one, the quality and the traits within a cucumber
0: can make a, a better pickle. So do you work, were you a breeder? Did you work with breeders on developing those traits and characteristics? Um,
1: I, I In that sense, no, I'm not a breeder, but I absolutely work with all the pickle breeders, as I say, in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio for a period of time, they were all working with that. And as an association, we've actually funded research so that we knew we would be getting a better cucumber down the road Uh, so we funded a lot of research so there's uh, i was actively engaged in the research area for all that time
0: the the german side of me is is like really excited with about the idea of pickling you know cucumbers cabbage and um is that because uh, you know is the pickle industry big in the Midwest? Because we have had a lot of, uh, in my case, German um, uh, immigrants come in and settle in this part of the country, or is is the pickle industry is that kind of kind of ubiquitous across North America?
1: It is all the way across from the East Coast, you know, New York and the kosher deal and all mm-hmm. that, all the way out to the California side. Uh, so yes, you're you're very correct. There was a lot of uh, ethnicity involved here with that and uh, in, in in historically if we think back to the settlement the sidebusters and the settlement of our country there were no jewels there were no seven elevens you either had a great big garden and put a lot of product up for the wintertime or you didn't survive the winter as a family mm-hmm so uh, pickling is the and I won't say the lowest common denominator of food preservation, but that's the way that's the way these folks s- survived through the winter time when there you know say when there was no grocery store to go go to. Wow. So it's it's well embedded in uh, in the United States. And how did it get here? We brought you know, they, we brought it with us as we came from all the other countries around the world. To get to the United States to settle, we brought all that knowledge and the recipes and all that with us.
0: Wow! Yeah. Now, so I'm going to look at the grocery store shelves of pickles in a totally different light now. You know, and thinking about both your role in it and, and and as historically, that's how we survived. Uh,
1: absolutely, and don't forget the sauerkraut, by the way.
0: Oh no, definitely not. No, I'm the only one in my family that eats it, but I I can take a can. Take a whole can of that, put it on a, like a hot dog or something. It's delicious. Yeah, it so, is. Oh, well, let's switch gears here. Uh, you know, another reason why I want you here, Richard, is this is the perfect time of year to, to talk about lawns. And when it comes to lawn care, um, I've learned a lot from you uh, since I've been with Extension it's been five years now. And, you know, when it comes to lawns, uh, you, you teach master gardener training, turf training. You know, I've taken a lot of your powerpoints your notes and use those as i've taken over turf training down here uh, in the southern portion of of illinois but when it comes to lawn care a lot of people want to start things in spring and i tell them that's not gonna it's not gonna hurt to do things in spring but it may not be the best time so could you give us a little bit of advice uh, for our cool season lawns which is what most of us in illinois at least in our neck of the woods are growing what should homeowners be doing right now? We're in mid-August for their lawns. Well,
1: we have a we have a typical fall establishment time frame. Typically, we think about from about the middle of August now through through uh, at least the first week in September. If you're a little bit farther south in Illinois, you get a couple more weeks of reprieve. <clears throat> Far north, uh, that September fifth date is pretty hard because. Uh, you need the grass up, you need it to get growing, you need to to be able to have mowed it several times before the killing frosts finally get here so that the lawn is old enough to survive. Uh, You've got more leeway as you move, move down the state. So this is a prime time for seeding the lawn. It's actually a prime time for putting down sod because, as you point out, our cool season grasses really prefer cooler soil temperatures and fall moisture from the fall rains.
0: When it comes to spring versus late season seeding you know i we always tell folks um again it's not going to hurt to seed in the spring but you know you have a lot more other issues happening in the spring like annual weed germination uh we're going to be coming into the summer the soil is fairly cold that time of year too um whereas in later on in the season uh or at least the the summer annuals uh, they're pretty much giving it up Um, The soil is a bit warmer, so germination might be a bit more efficient. So in terms of putting down seed, have you seen a correlation? Is is seeding late season, early summer, does that give you better germination?
1: Well, um, yes, it does, and without the competition of all those annual weeds that you spoke of. Um, just now so we uh, sowing your lawn in the spring and by the end of fall you have a quite a collection you have a quite a collection of annual and perennial weeds in your lawn along with your along with your desirable grasses when we sow that lawn in the fall uh, come next spring when those other weeds would normally want to germinate the lawn has already got many weeks uh, jump on that weed seed. So you still have a better lawn as a result when you sow in the fall. So that's my preferred seeding time would be, uh, certainly would be late summer, early fall Mm -hmm. over spring, just because of the weed seed problem that we end up with. We do everything correctly to, to generate the seed bed, promoting good, quick germination of our preferred lawn grasses. And yet we, that's the very, and so we're encouraging
0: weed seed growth as well. Exactly. let's move on to our client questions. Um, sure. As we get, as we wrap up this show, we like to take questions that have come into the extension office here. Uh, this is what we've gotten from uh, our what we call McDonough, Warren, Henderson and Knox counties. Um, also pulled one offline. So let's start with the first one here. Um, and this question here, Richard, comes from Champaign, Illinois, even though yes, over in Champaign every once in a while, we get questions from all over the sure. state and sometimes, as you know, the country. Yes. Um, And what this homeowner in Champaign wants to know, they've just moved into a new house, and as part of that contract that they they signed when they bought that new house, the previous owner put down sod, and so the sod has just been put down. What do they do? How should they water the sod?
1: Well, um, sod gets watered absolutely pretty much opposite of how we might be watering a, a brand new seeded lawn sod gets installed, you've got the green, you've got a tiny little bit of thatch and virtually the crown of the grass plant, but, but no roots, it was harvested and rolled up. So sod takes uh, an awful lot of water uh, to, ma- to allow the crown with a very limited root system to absorb that moisture and keep the grass plant alive. Uh, so usually you have to put on an awful lot of water for at least two weeks in order to um, begin to establish the lawn. And even after two weeks, it doesn't mean you can really slack off. You've got to get enough of a root system developed into your permanent, located, you know, into your soil where the sod has just been laid. And then over time, you can begin to back off. But initially, an awful lot of water Be prepared to be watering, you know, like not around the clock, but you almost, you probably are going to be watering, depends upon how you're doing it, every day. So,
0: invest in some sprinklers. uh,
1: Yes, and and if I can inject one more, and invest in some good sprinklers, Mm -hmm. and invest in good hose, because while you can put water with a half inch diameter hose, you get, you get way more water out of a five-eighths and the the luxury hose would be a three-quarter hose. But uh, even if you have a bad sprinkler, the larger the hose, the better the sprinkler will work. I did not know that. That's... Because you've got more volume
0: and more pressure getting to the sprinkler. Oh, I'm definitely learning yeah. things today. Okay, next question comes from Mike. He's in Knox County. Now, he is selling his house, so kind of opposite end here, and he wants to improve his lawn because he has lots of Creeping Charlie and non- grasses, and he's looking for what, what type of herbicide recommendations uh, can we give him?
1: Well, all right. Creeping Charlie is probably the, the nemesis of every homeowner that, that ends up with it in their yard. It's the hardest to control of the broadleaf weeds, I think, and his other comment about non-grasses, I will assume that might be chickweed, that might be uh, dandelions and, and things like that. Dandelions are easy to take out. The Creeping Charlie is uh, much more difficult. Uh, if he's serious about getting that lawn uh, up to speed quickly, he'd, he can spray um, and take manage the broadleaf weeds pretty easily. Uh, yet, because of the difficulty with Creeping Charlie, there are times when you would benefit from a lawn care coming in and taking care of that. The other, they have different products that you and I as homeowners can get a hold of, and, it, and they seem to do a better job for Creeping Charlie. Uh, the other side of that story is if you control the weeds but don't promote the lawn, other kinds of weeds will move right back in as soon as the first round of weeds is controlled. So a promotion of uh, you got to really promote good, good grass recovery, and that would be fertilization, that will be watering to encourage uh, the grass that's there to become more competitive and grow and, and, and have the vigor to fill out and expand in the, and expand what he has. There may be a need, depending upon the weed population or density, to uh, do some top dressing and overseeding. Uh, if, he's, um, if this lawn is established for a number of years, the lawn would also benefit from uh, core aeration. Um, to provide more air into the soil profile, more water into the so- soil profile, and that's going to promote uh, much better root growth in terms of uh, the lawn, and that will again help the lawn thicken up.
0: At the the joke that I like uh, that is often told at uh, various extension programs is if you have creeping Charlie problems, sell your house, and then you won't right. have creeping Charlie problems. So, Mike, <laughs> right. once you sell your house, your problem is solved.
1: That's so right.
0: Got to do that. <laughs> All right, next question comes from Judy, and she's uh, from Rock Island, your old Stopping Grounds. Yeah. Um, she has had grub problems in the past. She put down grub control in the early spring, but she still is fighting grubs, uh, is getting damage in her lawn. What advice do we have for her?
1: Well, when it comes to grub control, the magic number we look for is you need at least 10 to 12 grubs per square foot Uh, in order to make a a treatment, uh, before you can validate a treatment, Uh, less than the 10 or 12 grubs per square foot, the lawn will keep up with the damage and you won't even know the grub is there. Above that threshold number, the grubs are eating more grass roots than the grass plant can provide and that's when we see the lawn browning. Uh, That's when we see the damage occurring. Uh, when it the numbers are that high or higher, and uh, when I was in Rock Island County, uh, I visited properties where there were more than 30 grubs per square foot. Um, at that point, you can grab the, your lawn and pick it up, and and raise it up off the ground like a piece of sod or a bed toupee.
0: <clears throat>
1: uh, <laughs> certainly, certainly, treatments are very valid and justified at that point. Um, Knowing, understanding how the grub works, the Japanese beal or mass chafer lays the egg sometime in uh, late July, early August. We should be seeing brand new grubs from that egg laying hatch uh, now out there. Um, Applying a grub control product in the spring. Uh, Really, the, the new crop of grubs is not there yet in the spring what she might have been protecting from were any overwintering grubs, but overwintering grubs really don't eat enough in the springtime to cause damage in the lawn. So the period of protection really needs to be the late summer, early fall. Uh, Some of the products homeowners can apply have a a year round or a 12 month coverage period. Uh, So depending upon if if a one time product was applied, it would have been ineffective against any grub damage late summer, early fall.
0: So the final question that we have comes from our our Ask extension. This is our online form that you can fill out and uh, submit a question and it will go uh, primarily, I think Richard, they go primarily to you, but you're just trying to get those out to some of us other educators here in the state. Um, uh, This homeowner is in uh, Des Plaines, am I saying that correctly? Yep. All right, Des Plaines, Illinois, uh, they had a yard flooded with lake water for two year, two weeks because you, you guys had quite a bit of rainfall this yes. summer. All right, so now the yard is full of silt. That sounds like it's drained, but it's full of silt, foul smelling. Any ideas what to do for this lawn?
1: Lawns will tolerate 24, 48 hours. Maybe you were stretching it to get to 36 hours of being flooded um, before they're going to die. Uh, even lawns that have standing water but part of the lawn is exposed above the soil, above the water surface will last longer than when they're totally submerged. So after two weeks, that lawn and pretty much guarantee that as the water recedes, uh, that flooding water brought in the silty material, and, and you have no idea what's in that, by the way, and the foul smell, part of that is the water that came in, but the other part of that foul smell may be the lawn actually standing, sitting there, laying there rotting. Hmm. Uh, recovery is when it's underwater for two weeks, you're really talking about reestablishment. Uh, you might find the occasional dandelion or something, uh, surviving, but pretty much the lawn grasses themselves are, are gone. Um, anything less than, so things we can do if, if the silts aren't too bad, you could literally take more, uh, take your garden hose and kind of rinse off the lawn, get the, you know flush the silty material away if it's not so bad. Um, core aeration is critical. Remember that a gallon of water or a gallon of milk here weighs about seven point some pounds. You have com- the standing water literally weighted down the soil and compacted the soil. So core aeration is one of the first things we can do at release compaction as I mentioned earlier and another another answer here. You are introducing air back into the soil and air is an an absolute requirement for any grass, any plant to live with its roots. You have to have air in the soil for it to actively find and take up nutrition again, actually find and take water up again. So the air is critical to that. So core aeration um, is a a very big part of that. Time will allow the smell and all that silt to become part of the soil profile again. and then there is going to be top dressing, overseeding, reseeding, if it's a high profile area, perhaps the removal of all that and re after you've done a very good job of soil prep.
0: Okay. And, and this time of year is a great time to be reestablishing a lawn
1: absolutely we're seeing that happening everywhere right now any of these areas that have been flooded it's uh, uh we have a local golf course here in st charles through the park district they are in the midst right now of trying to reestablish fairways in the rough areas knock on wood Unfortunately for them it didn't get into any of the greens <laughs> but uh it was you couldn't play the course essentially is there were there was so much water
0: All Right. well those are the questions that we have for uh, today. I, I want to thank you, Richard, for being on the program today. Is, is there any, any way that, um, I guess, folks, if they wanted to follow you, do you have a blog? What, what, what way do you have uh, in terms of outreach, social media, for uh, where you're located? The, um,
1: on, on a statewide basis, um, you can look at a podcast called Green Side Up, which is published or put out uh, once a week. And I cover seasonal topics that way. Uh, if folks wander around and within our system find our unit Facebook page, and it's DKK, <laughs> Page Kane and Kendall. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a there's a Facebook page there, and uh, weekly story, weekly articles are published there as well.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, Richard, thank you once again for being on the show. We really appreciate it, and thank you everybody for listening.